legends of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. I am joined by my co-hosts, the co-founders of World of Wonder, Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbado. Hello, boys. Hi there. Are you excited? Super excited. <laughs> um, my God, a legend is in the house. A legendary legend is in the house. Yes, and someone that we have a lot of past with. Uh, our guest today is a queer icon. He is a journalist, a former nightlife columnist. He is a radio host uh, on Sirius XM. Uh, he is the author of five books, Queer in America, The Signorelli Report, um, Life Outside, uh, Hitting Hard, which I know I have somewhere back there, but I can't find them. And it's not over. What one am I missing? That's, That's it. it. Okay. Uh, and this is just, we're just scratching the surface. Welcome to the show. Michelangelo Signorelli. Oh my God, it's so nice to see you. It is so great to see you. I'm like, I, got, like, I can't believe how many years it's been. Well, we were just talking a second ago. It's been 15 years since I saw you last. That's right. You came in my studio and I interviewed you about your book. So every 15 years, we'll have each other on a, on a show. <laughs> Oh my God, he's got the, Fenton has the hardcover Queer in America with the backwards map, which a lot of people don't notice because they're dyslexic. I read this on a White Lotus vacation in Hawaii for four <laughs> seasons and it changed my life. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, listen, usually I have about two pages of notes for people. Michelangelo, I have five pages of notes of stories of oh you. So I wanted to dive right into this and I thought we would get we would go, um, we would play a quick game. We're going to play a lightning round. Your first 20 years, I'm going to ask the question and you answer, and we're just going to get blow through those for your childhood, okay? Oh my Are God. Are you ready? Oh my God. Okay. okay. You were born where? Brooklyn, New York. You were raised where? Brooklyn and Staten Island, New York. Staten Island. You went to school where? Um, school, you're, college? No, no, be, you're, no, no, no be, you're, your early years. Oh, St. John Villa Academy on Staten Island. And it was a Catholic school, and you have said that Catholicism really fucked you up vis-a-vis -vis your homosexuality. Am I right? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. I went to Catholic boys' school, high school after that, and then I got kicked out because I was, well, I had, I went on the football team, and then I, when we went to camp, I was fooling around with some of the boys. And As then you do. when we got back, when we got back from camp, nobody was queer anymore except me. And I, it's a long story, but there was bullying and fighting, and I was asked to leave the school. You've also mentioned in Queer in America that um, as a result of being bullied, that you became a bully, which is something that happens very often. And, uh, uh -huh. and so you were the one. And there, there's a very sad story about you throwing basketballs at some boy's head all the time. That's right. That's right. A very sad story. Yeah. And then like years later, I would apologize to him. Yeah. Like he was the person who, because then when I went to, to Newdorp High School, which was the public high school, and it was like rougher and everything. And I was trying to prove that, no, I wasn't right, one of right. those. And so I picked on the same person that they all picked on. Yeah. Which is such a classic, horrible, demented, sick story. But, but it is very, very common. Now, at the same time, you were also having anonymous hookups underneath the, um, the piers, un underneath the boardwalk in, right. in Staten Island. <laughs> right. Okay. You did all your reading. 
I know, I know, I know. Yeah, I was under the boardwalk uh, at South Beach on Staten Island, uh, which is really one of those great old-fashioned boardwalks, and it's one of the largest in the world. And but underneath, uh, there was a lot of stuff going on, and 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 people having sex, men having sex, boys having sex. Well, boys having sex with boys, yeah, and maybe some men. I don't know. I want to do a whole documentary about under the boardwalk. I have a feeling <laughs> that's where that's where the real story is here. James, that is a different <laughs> podcast. I, it is indirect. So, how did you discover the boardwalk? Because this is like pre-social media and. Did you just like, were you on the beach one day and you had to take a piss and like. That's really, really interesting. Like I, I had a lot of sex as a teenager in New York city in various places. And, and that's a really great question. How did I find the boardwalk? I, I, I might've actually literally just stumbled on it. Like you know, or was it one of those things that you would hear in school, like, oh, those faggots underneath the boardwalk? It was like an urban legend. No, you know? no, I don't think I heard any of that. I think I just like saw something going on. I was walking down there, saw something going on. And then I just learned almost like like almost like dogs learn how like where I just learned, OK, whenever you see somebody lurking somewhere or doing something, there may be sex somewhere. I just learned that about New York City all over the place. And I would meet people on the subway. I would meet. I, I, I Yeah, I, I was I was doing a lot. You get Gator very early and you figure out, oh, he's looking at me this way. He's, you know, whatever. Yeah. So um, then yeah. you uh, where did you go to college? Syracuse University. And you're sort of out by the time you're in college. Yeah. I mean, out to the extent of like, okay, now I'm going out. <laughs> you know, I went to all the bars in Syracuse. I had all my gay friends. I, you know, we did all our 80s, you know, uh, early 80s, right? Early, yeah. Early 80s dancing, bar clubbing, hopping, whatever in Syracuse. So it was kind of, uh, a little different, but I, I hadn't, when I was in New York, I hadn't really been out like, you know, it wasn't until going away to school that I, that I really was. And, and you aren't out to your family yet. That comes much later. No. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, I believe we've gotten to age 20. I believe we are through your childhood and now we can get to the good stuff because after, <laughs> no, no, I'm not good. Oh, man, he's just making you James. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> We're done with all that boring shit. <laughs> People want to hear about the boardwalk. Sorry. No, but I want to get straight to when you come to New York and you start working for PR agencies, and I find all of this fascinating, and it really will tie into everything the podcast is about. Because the first one wasn't my call; it was there was another PR agency. Yeah, it's so crazy. There was a place called Photo Team. So I come back to the city, and I'll, and like. I, you know, I had majored in journalism and, you know, I thought, okay, it's hard to find job. And I had, I had had a concentration in PR. And so I started just going through the phone book, can't find a job, going through the phone book, calling places, looking for help. And of course, getting hung up on, you know, um, but learning that that was the way to do it. Just call up places and all of a sudden you get that person like, oh, really? Oh, yeah, maybe we could use somebody. So I find this place, Photo Team, it was called. And it was like a, um, 
it was out of uh, an apartment building. Like their offices were in an uh, an apartment building tower on 72nd Street and York Avenue. Like it, there weren't offices. This was like a residential, you know, building. And it was these three people. And they made um, what were called advertorials. So they um, bought three pages of Vogue or Glamour or Mademoiselle or any, any of these magazines. Like they bought the three pages, then have these these um clients you know sell their products through that like like we had a miss great face contest you know and like girls from across the country would you know compete in this and send in their photos and like the previous advertorial would advertise that and then they'd come and we just use these girls who were not models they just wanted to be models like they were part of the contest and then like the advertorial for that one would be like the girls all went around New York City and they did this and they went to this restaurant and they went to this one and they, you know, photographing them in, in the clothes of clients or at the restaurant of a client or whatever. It was a whole made up thing, you know, and that's kind of how it worked. Then you went on to Mike Hall and I want to sort of talk about Mike Hall a little bit because it's fascinating 80s ephemera. Tell me about it. Again, I went back to the phone book and because everything at that place had just gotten too crazy and they didn't have any money and everything. So I went back to the phone book and got to M's. So I had got a job by F because it was photo team of an F. And now I went to, got a job by M, Mike Hall Associates. And Mike Hall was an old time Broadway press agent. Um, he goes back to like the 50s. Vaudeville. <laughs> yeah. And he was what was called a column planter by that time in the 80s. Um, he used to have clients who he did all of their publicity, but uh, by the 80s, he was the guy who simply got clients into the gossip columns. So sometimes other publicists would hire Mike Hall for a little while, but he often had clients. We had clients that were, you know, Broadway producers, uh, movie studios, like like several of the movie studios were his clients, um, some individuals even. And the whole idea was, and some restaurants, we would just get them into gossip columns, like Liz Smith at the time, Page Six, um, Susie, or everybody might remember Susie. The we're going to get to Susie Gate in a little bit, so don't, we'll have <laughs> yeah. some Susie. We would just get them in. And and the whole process was it would be trading uh, dirt and gossip for um, you know getting plugs on our clients. So we would we would we would write out we would all get gossip from wherever we could. I was by then doing nights on the nightclub scene, whatever. Um, we would hear things. People would call us because with gossip because we could give them screening passes to films from our clients from our film companies or Broadway tickets. They'd give us gossip. It was worth a lot. They got more. And then we would send the columnists like pages of stuff and, and every other item was a client item and every item in between was a juicy gossip about somebody else. And we had a whole system there. So, so, so the idea is is that if they use one, they have to use the uh, one of the other kinds, right? Like they, right. Like, I mean, they're gonna if they're gonna was, do a, yeah. It was pretty much like that, like a quick you know, pro quo. yeah. But sometimes they'd you, you know, it wasn't 
down to a, a like complete, you know, total agreement one for one. Like sometimes we'd get annoyed. We'd send Liz a whole page of stuff and she'd use all this great gossip and only give us one plug, you know? So sometimes that would work that way. And then, you know, we would, we would, um, we, we, we would strip out these items like into little strips of paper. Like if they were used, they would just go into a trash bin, but if they weren't used, cause a lot of times, whether it was a gossip item or a client item, they wouldn't be used. So then they went, we had a, a wall of trays of columnists. They would just go to another columnist. So, so if page six doesn't take it, then you send it to Susie. And if Susie doesn't take it, it goes to Cindy Adam. Right. And eventually you're doing Eventually, you're at Jerry Berger at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. You know, <laughs> like eventually, you're getting over there. I'm so fascinated by this because there'll be some, presumably some sort of gossip that you wouldn't ever trade or that some, what was the sort of filter of acceptable versus not acceptable? Well, I'm thinking, hold on, and this is just what your whole book is about, Queer in America, is the, the columnist would not touch what? homosexuality that that was i mean you couldn't uh or would never imply that largely the columnists were gay too and closeted so the closet was held up and, and we would actually closet people like we would send items about peter allen and you know with some woman or you know we would we would closet celebrities in films that we knew were not, you know, I mean, sometimes we would, we would match up a, a gay actor and a lesbian act, actress and cut, kill two birds with one stone. So, so that was all fine to do. We were expected to lie about that stuff. Um, everything else we had to be truthful of. If you, you know, when you were talking about extramarital affairs, divorces, um, you know, any other dirt, it had to be accurate. You, you had to be right. But the one thing you didn't get right was who was who was queer enough. Because I know later on that really became your your cause celeb, your raison d'etre. That was you know you had you went into the outing business essentially. But was that something that really upset you? At, at the beginning, no, because that's just how the world worked. That's yeah. just how New York worked. It was kind of a wink, wink, and a nudge, nudge, and. Everybody understood. And everybody, I mean, you know, in my office, it was, there were gay men. I, w- I wasn't the only one. I mean, we all did it. It was just understood that yeah. that's how it was, was done in the business. And, you know, people had to work and people, you know, everybody on Broadway was gay and they just didn't talk about it. One of the interesting things about writing these columns, these planted columns, is that you would write it, you would match it in the style of like a Cindy Adams, if you were sending it to Cindy Adams, or you would mimic Susie's sort of way of writing. Am I right? Oh yeah. We would, we would write the columns exactly so that they could use it word for word. And, and often, especially, you know, if it was a big item, uh, Mike would, he was like the maestro. He would sit there with the copy and write it and craft it, especially for Susie. Susie was, you know, you really had to write an, an opus. <laughs> La dee da, and everyone was so fabulous and that, and yes, she wrote like she was at a party, yes. You had to get her, and she didn't like to do anything anyway. So if you really wrote it, 
her way. Then it got went right in. Liz would tinker around with it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we would we would write them in their style. Page six, we knew their their some of their crass, you know, kind of barbs and their their little one liners and this and that. So we even canoodling. Used to give, they were out canoodling. Oh, it's the Adam. We had to give Cindy Adams all of her kind of Cindy Adams, you know, schmaltz kind of stuff, and and very trashy and flashy kind of stuff. So we always knew who wanted what. And then after you were at Mike Hall, you got your column in Long Island Nightlife magazine, I believe is what it was, right? Because Long Island Nightlife created New York Nightlife, so I was writing for New York Nightlife. Ah, right. And sort of while I was working for Mike Hall, and then I eventually left Mike Hall. And you were doing the the column full time. And I'm thinking, you know, because I was going back in my diaries and trying to find pinpoint the exact moment that we started hanging out and the moment that we met. And all of a sudden, I can't. All of a sudden, one day you were just there in my life. <clears throat> and every single day, you, we were the kind of friends. We, my, You, Michael, and I were a threesome um and you in the morning you were the first person i called in the morning to talk about the night before and you know we went out to dinner every day we went to lunch every day we were together almost 24 7 during this period but i can't pinpoint when um in my diaries you were always mas maz michael hanchelo right well i like i remember kind of knowing you or knowing of you and knowing of Michael and knowing Michael, but getting a lot of shade. And like, you know, as I've been watching the Gilded Age, have you been watching the Gilded Age? It's exactly like that. I was Mrs. Russell. (laughs) I mean, you know, I, you, you just need to keep, you just need to keep being there every night. And then finally, you know, Michael talks to you and then, and then maybe then James talks and then, then you're hanging out, right? But then Stephen Sabin is never going to talk to you like for a while, a long while, before you're even going to get in his column, right? And everybody else. And maybe Diane Brill will eventually say hello. I mean, that's kind of how it, you know, was. And it really, it took a while, right? Of like, you know, um, and, I, and I can remember like when the three of us were hanging out, like you and I would talk about that. And you'd say like, you know, oh, yeah, Stephen, you just gotta, this is how you have to deal with him, you know, and this is how you have to, so, so, so yeah, you were like showing me the ropes. But then, by God, you <laughs> took over and you out, <laughs> outpassed the, the teacher here because you were the one getting invited to Alan Rich dinner parties when I was off the, <laughs> off the radar. And I remember there's many times where I'm just furious with you. How dare Michelangelo go to an Alan Rich dinner party and not take me because Alan doesn't like me anymore. But that's we're, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Well, because then I, when I was writing a column so I could always give them publicity. But, yes. James, you do remember the Jean-Paul Gaultier lookalike well, Yes, and this is this is how you really soared to the top here, uh, because there was a Gaultier lookalike contest at the Palladium, was it? Do you remember where it was? At the Palladium. It was at the, at the Palladium. And mm-hmm. Gaultier was looking for a lookalike to send down the runway at his show in Paris. And there was about 40 bleach blonde winks in a line but I had gone out that day and gone to a costume store and found a pair of 
Prince Charles fake ears that were like this big. The contest. And it just, you walked out and it was a thundering ovation. And Gautier fell on the floor. He was laughing so hard. And you were flown off to Paris and walked in the show. You were a genius. You won me that contest, right? (laughs) And then then there I was in Paris. That is such a good story. I mean, look at you. You look so well-preserved, too. You look so gorgeous. Like, you, I mean, I can see even now why you would have won that contest, even without the ears. (laughs) We ought to call Jean-Paul and tell him (laughs) to bring it back, bring back the contest. But I remember you got that wonderful jacket, the black. It was like the scuba gear jacket. Oh, yeah, yeah. They gave me a bunch of stuff. Yeah. That, see, that's why you do it. Everything that I walked down the runway with, uh, they just let me keep. Well, you know, we we got into a lot of trouble. We were We were pretty, we were troublemakers, the two of us. In what way? I'm not going to go into detail about the, a couple things because I I have to burn some diaries because there's one trip you and I took to Paradise Garage at six o'clock in the morning that took up six pages of my oh. diary. It's that scandalous. It just wow. It is. I I will tell you some other time what we did, but it was we were bad, and I remember Musto was. Was it Paradise Garage or the, um, um, what am I thinking of the other club that we would go to? There was Save the Robots and uh, Sound Factory, but we were going to the garage when this which was, uh, but anyway, but anyway. I changed you, it's such a tease. That is, like, you know, can't do no. a podcast and say, oh, I, it's all in my diary and I'll tell you later. Like, what, what? No, but this is what this is what I was mad about Maggie Haberman doing, you know, holding on to a story for so that she can sell. I'm selling a book about Michelangelo Signorelli later, <laughs> and that's where I'm going to tell all the really good stories. Um, but I have to, there is a couple of stories where Michael Musto is furious with us because one time he was giving an interview and we were drunk and we started voguing in front of him like it, it, the camera was rolling and he was like how dare you ruin an interview and he wouldn't speak to us for weeks afterwards because we were busy you know trying to pull focus from michael musto <laughs> um and do you also remember this is this is my favorite do you remember when i didn't let you into the world on opening night I maybe I do I remember I don't know what happened. Michelangelo does James make these stories up? Fen and I are always wondering. No, well, no, no. It was always um um it was always a like y- you know um bitchy nasty tender relationship right like it's always like um okay here I'll let you do this and this then how dare you do that or you know it, it was always that. Right. Okay. What, what, what happened? No, I think I maybe do remember. So you and I had gotten into a hissy pissy queenie fight a, a couple of days before, and we were never going to speak to each other again. This is it. Our friendship was over. I'm never speak. You are. This is the, the living end. I'm just furious with you. And it was right before the world opened, and which was this club on Avenue C. It was this huge, huge, big deal. It was yes. on, on Avenue C and Second Street, and it was I was doing the door. I I was going to be a doorman. I was changing my career. I think yeah. this was the only time you were hired to do the door. Am I right? 
How dare you? I did doors for 12 years for crying out loud. I was one of the best doormen the city's ever seen. Well, that was your big break doing the door of the world, I think, yes, right? It was. And I was feeling my oats. I was fe- I was a superstar again. This was my big comeback. <laughs> and I'm standing on the Apple box and there's a huge sea of people. I mean, thousand people out there trying to get in and everyone's pushing in their way to get in. And Run DMC and Public Enemy are playing opening night. So it was a big, huge deal. And I'm pulling in Joan Rivers comes. Oh, Joan, darling, come in. And Brooke Shields, Brooke, darling. Yes, yes, yes. And then the Beastie Boys, oh, come in. And then Michael Musto, Musto, darling, come in. And then Michelangelo is behind him. Oh, no. Oh, you do not enter. You are not coming in, Michelangelo. And you are like, what? And then Stephen Lewis comes out and says, James, you can't not let Michelangelo in. And I was like, I will quit if I have to let that man into this club. I think I remember this. (laughs) Not much has changed, Michelangelo. He's still the same. But then by the end of the night, we were we were best friends again and we were running around to the robot save the robot. Well that used to happen a lot. And you and Michael used to fight too. Oh, all the time. Yeah. I think I just fight with everyone. <laughs> and Fenton will disagree with that too. Um, so um I want to talk a little bit about Susie Gate. Let's get back to Susie because you were responsible for Susie Gate, which is just a fascinating story. And we should explain who that is. Yeah. You know, because a lot of people might not know who that is. And here's the thing, because Michelangelo and I have different views about this, because I think she's the most fabulous woman to ever walk the planet. I love I want to do a Susie, a a compendium of her columns from 1960 to 1990. Maybe before you get into Susie, I should just say, like, Michelangelo, I feel there's two of you, you know, like there's the one in New York. I remember you coming to Limelight and Randy and I were doing our little show, Flaunted TV, and you were like, I've got the blondest hair and the bluest eyes. And you were very um, exuberant, right? And you were very, yeah, like gossip columnist. You were going to be, there was no question, you were already writing a column and you were going to be this big gossip columnist. And I always think of you and I think of St. Paul on the road to Damascus. It feels like you had a rev- an epiphany and a complete... Yes. Change and became a completely different person. By the way, both lovely and adorable, but dramatically different. These two stories actually connect because yeah, that was obviously after I became involved with ACT UP, after I started seeing everything through a more political lens. But we can't get to that ro- until we do this, because right. this, is, this is very important. This is a turning point for you. Because, well, so Susie was Aileen Maylin. She was the columnist, otherwise known as Susie, who wrote the column in the Daily News that was all high society. She liked celebrities, though, too. And she and Liz Smith were always in this. Liz felt she was always walking on her turf, right? Because she liked Hollywood a bit, but her beat was supposed to be high society and, you know, just that whole, you know, very ladies who lunch crap. And so we would give her stuff and bring her stuff. And uh, she was also really mean. She lived in this um, beautiful, you know, place off the park, on uh, off Central Park, up, up, you know, on Fifth Avenue. And um, 
she never wanted copy delivered to her before a certain time. Because she she had to have her beauty sleep. She was a she was a beautiful, elegant woman. And if you got there five minutes before, you I mean, all hell would rain down, and she'd call Michael and scream and this and that. Now. The picture, she was beautiful in the picture, but I don't think she looked like that anymore. Well, the picture was from 1957. (laughs) 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 So we used to write Susie's column and learned how to do it. And uh, we would would write the columns all the time. Mike Hall would really craft all columns because she didn't do items. She would do a a whole event that happened, the whole party, you know, the the Met Gala or, or whatever event was going on. And so um, we would do it, and and I guess other publicists did it. So later, when I started to pull away from, you know, when I got involved with ACT UP, when I became more politicized, right as as that process was happening, I met James Revson, who had just started a column for Newsday. James Revson of the Revlon family. Yeah, so he had it into high society anyway. And, but we were kind of both going in different directions because he had come from writing hard news and focusing on AIDS and writing about AIDS and now wanted to sort of write about parties and get away from that. And he started writing this gossip column that he was going to try to, do something a little different with, but he was trying to find his way. What do I do in writing this gossip columns? I was get, heading in the direction of I'm, I'm. This is all a world. I, I, I'm seeing things that I don't like. I'm seeing them ignoring AIDS. I'm seeing the benefits, the AIDS benefits, just be parties that nobody really even thinks about what's happening anymore. They've become just you know completely folded in. I'm seeing nobody talk about AIDS, and I'm seeing us closeting all these people, you know, when at a time when we needed visibility. So we're kind of both kind of at a, a, you know, different kind of meeting our path. And we started dating and, and sort of he's, you know, asking me for ideas of how he should write this column. And I'm, I start telling him, well, and he and his thing was society more so too. They wanted him because he's from society, because he was from that world of, of wealthy, you know, the Revlon family, of the Revson family that owned Revlon. Um, you know, they wanted him to get into that. So I told him the whole story of Susie. I told him, well, Susie doesn't really do much. She we write her columns and she doesn't even go to these events and everything. And he said, really? He, he just was completely shocked. And we decided to kind of, you know, monitor that. And so he was at events himself. I don't know what society event it was, some big benefit, some big charity. And the next day, Susie had it written up in her <laughs> column. And who was there? And who said what? And who said this? Except he knew Susie wasn't there. And none and of so, the people that she wrote about was there, that she was just taking <laughs> it off of the, the PR, the publicity. Right. Yeah. And so he wrote it as a column and that just stunned the society world and the media world. When I tell you that all of New York came to a standstill because <laughs> Susie did not write her own column, it became front page news 
in every New York newspaper, from the New York Times to the Daily News. The Wall Street Journal dubbed it Susie Gate the next day. I mean, on the front page, that's what was crazy. And meanwhile, Liz Smith is loving every second of it because Susie is her rival, right? Yes. And and then they're asking her for comment. And this just, James Revson just soared. He yes. just, his name just blew this up. This made his career. The columnist, that's right. Yeah. And, um, and all of this is because Michelangelo one time woke Susie up five minutes early and he's been, he's been pissed about, it. she's been pissed. And decided to destroy her. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you did. That was Susie Gate. And, and that was sort of, as I was moving away from that world and James Revson was, was more immersed in it and bigger than ever. Michael talked about when he was on the show about he was at Limelight with you and some cute guy came up to you and said, come to an ACT UP meeting. And that was the first. Do you remember this moment? Yeah, it was actually a few, a couple of guys. And they were sort of, you know, the ACT UP recruiting team, hot muscle boys. It was at Boy Bar. We were at Boy Bar. okay. And um, I was in that place where I was like, something's going on that nobody's paying attention to. Something's going on that our whole world isn't paying attention to. That's just been, you know, kind of made into another thing we do, go to benefits. Um, And Michael was definitely there already and feeling the same thing. And, you know, he'd written about AIDS and HIV and the voice. And he talked a lot about how schizophrenic his column was becoming at that time where he would have goofy nightclub followed by an act up, but you know, yeah. And it was just right. sort of like a TikTok back and forth with him. You know, yeah. but, and, and so we were both thinking about wanting to do something. And these guys came up to us and they said, you know, you should come to act up. And Michael said, well, what do you think? Should and so we talked to them and then they went away. And Mike said, what do you think? Should we go to this group? And I said, no, I, I mean, this group, I've seen what they do. They, they, they get arrested, they go to jail, they stop traffic, they do this, they do that. Like I wasn't thinking, I didn't even know what I wanted to do, but I definitely didn't want to get arrested. And, but Michael said, but these guys are really hot. You know, we <laughs> so we went. That was honestly the reason we went. <laughs> and then the first um, night we went there, we were both like, I was blown away by everything the facts, the figures, the people, stockbrokers and feminists and artists. And I mean, it was just such a mix of people with enormous talent and skills and, and, um, facilities, things they could do, like, you know, uh, the media people there had lists of, of media you could work on. And, the, you know, and so it, it just blew me away. Michael went home and wrote what I think was like the first big piece on ACT UP for the Village Voice, or in his column, he did it in his column. And then I just got immersed in it. And I went to my first protest. I was fascinated to read how instrumental Chip Duckett was it act up and how he was able to um, uh, sort of utilize all of his nightclubbing skills. And I think the same can be said for you that all of these skills that you had learned 
you could bring to activism and activism journalism and things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was like, I mean, Chip Duckett was not just his nightclub stuff, but he had been a publicist for book companies, like for a book company. And I think it was cookbooks or something like that. And he knew about how to send people on the road and knowing every market in every city. And he was like, the great thing about this is we have people in every city that we can book on talk shows. Um, so it was amazing, the talent that was there. And I went to my first protest. It was Cardinal Ratzinger. Later, the Pope, right? Yes. Yeah. But he was the, you know, had written that homosexuality is uh, intrinsically evil. And this, so all my Catholic stuff sort of. Oh, bubbling back up again. Sure. It was like literally after that first day, I went to my first protest the next day. It was like two days later. And I was just going to watch how these people operated. And I um, didn't know what they, you know, how it would be. And I certainly didn't have the training. Like these people have all had a plan. who were going to be infiltrating this speech that Cardinal Ratzinger gave at St. Peter's, uh, which is the Protestant church, the modern church at the bottom of City Court. That's not even a Catholic church. It was, um, they knew that they couldn't get polit politicians and high society and, people like the Buckleys and whatever into like, like they weren't going to go into a Catholic church. So they just wanted a space for him to speak in basically that was more neutral. And so it was all the top nuns and all the, the mayor was there and all the politicians and everybody in this part of Gratzinger came. And then these uh, activists from ACT UP just started popping up in the audience and uh, jumping up in the middle of the speech and calling him, uh, the Antichrist and Nazi and all of this kind of thing. And I didn't even know them and I, I didn't know anything about it or what I was doing, but I just suddenly got electrified and I jumped up on this platform that went out into the congregation. It was almost like I was back on the runway in Paris. Put on tears. On this platform and i i don't know where this came from but i i pointed at him and i screamed to the audience he is no man of god he is the devil <laughs> and, then, and then i suddenly was taken down and handcuffed <laughs> by police and i'm thinking i can't go to jail i have a dinner party tonight <laughs> right? Um, and I was in the paddy wagon and they were like, who are you? <laughs> These people from ACT UP were like, who are you? Like, where did you, like, you weren't part of the plan. That was great or whatever. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And then, and then after I, um, got out, I went to the dinner party. I think it was, um, um, who, who, who was it? Don, uh, who did Andy Warhol's TV. Oh, Don Monroe. Right. It was a party. Yeah. It was a party for him, and it was, and I was telling them all about this, and I think they all thought I was crazy. Well, I remember, I do remember that dinner party, and I remember you came in a little wild-eyed, and you were talking about being arrested, and this, <laughs> and everyone was a little like, "Oh dear, Michelangelo's lost his mind. We, yes. we, he's gone too far. Maybe it's time to stop inviting him." Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, but that was it. That was my baptism. 
Uh, and then, yes, he would become the Pope. So I, I will always have that in my, in my pocket. It's interesting, though, to me, because sometimes I hear in, like, queer in America, um, not quite denigrating your time in the scene, but it's sort of like you felt at the time that it was it was more superficial than what it turned into, than what the activism and, and things like that. And But to me, it all is one linear story that leads to this. You know, everything you did led up to who it is that you became in the 90s. Well, I mean, there certainly became a tension that in my own life, because I yeah. looked back on the scene and I saw that even people that I knew were still, you know, doing that, were still promoting that. And one of them was James Redson because he was doing all of this and was closeted. And he also was dealing with AIDS himself. And so uh, I, I started to kind of see that some people, you know, like Musto clearly was seeing what was going on. Others were sort of going in a different direction. And I think like we even saw a lot of the straight people, right? Like it started to split and that's how like, we sort of saw Nels come on the scene. And right. It was much more sedate and less queer and less, you know, so I, I think there was a lot of tension between a lot of different people as AIDS became more prevalent. And maybe I think that you have to sort of, uh, it's like revolting against uh, your master or push it away in order to get to the new place. You have to sort of deny the, the superficial lifestyle in order to get to uh, out weak and act up and everything. There's that energy of the new convert, you know, like, mm -hmm. like you just become so immersed in something and everything else is, you know, uh, just not doing anything. There was something I found in ACT UP that, that was sort of antithetical to the scene in that it was very nurturing and very, um, people tapped into each other's emotions, whereas we were, you know, ruthless and bitchy. And yes, we had the moments where we connected, but it it was a whole different kind of interaction. It, right? it was the superficial versus something that was suddenly very real. Right. And, and suddenly people like, you know, you weren't competing with people in, in that sense, mm -hmm. right? You were, you know, because the scene was, everything was, you know, a, a, a competition in a way. And suddenly this was like, okay, we're all in this horrible thing. What can we do to work together? So it was a very different experience. And for me, a different experience of, of being queer of being gay like wow this is a different world um and more collectively working to try to change things so when you went to that protest i mean like is this shift from when you became politicized and and also sort of found it seems like you kind of found your voice yeah. was it that instant like like how did you move forward from that moment? Um, it, it just sort of became an immersion. Like it, it was really like, I joined the media committee right away to give all my skills, everything I learned, everything I you know, figured out um, to the group. 
like, okay, here's what I have. And I know this one. And I know that one. And what the people on the media committee at the time, some of them were from, you know, kind of very upscale PR firms or um, publications or had come from like TV news. And what they saw in me was um, somebody who was more from pop culture and gossip. And, and they knew that's where AIDS had to go. <laughs> we uh-huh. needed to get AIDS mainstream. Yeah. It, it had to stop being just talked about in the journals, right? It needed to be on people, people magazines. Cover, yeah. uh-huh. right? um, and so it, it, I, it just became a sort of, I used in the same way Chip Duckett used, you know, his kind of past. And it, we just immersed it into that world. And, Suddenly, I was meeting the media committee, you know, not long after that. And we were organizing massive protests like the seize control of the FDA. Uh, and, and my apartment was, you know, lined with press kits and, 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 and people coming in and out all the time. I mean, it was just like a, 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 a crazy um, whirlwind constantly. Of, and then, you know, it just, um, it eventually you know, moved into me at Outweek. Let's go to Outweek real quick, because I think that is, a, a, once again, it's it's a progression and it, it's a very logical progression for you. So talk about the, the founding of Outweek. Well, it was Gabriel Rotello, who we all know. Old friend of ours. Um, mm-hmm. Who, uh, you know, had done a lot of research and wanted to take that act up energy and put it into a publication. But again, Gabriel, such an interesting person, uh, because he also comes out of this world too. Mm-hmm. So he understood that this publication needed to be all of it, and 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 so in a way, Outweek was kind of like I feel like I, it, you know, I, I it was both those worlds now, yeah. both my worlds coming together, entertainment and and infotainment. It was infotainment. Right. Well, also just little interjection james and you were reunited in a sense that's that, right we? because that's you right. had diary of a mad queen and then your column did i bring you in to do that or did Gabe? what happened was and this is very <laughs> funny because um the malcolm uh malcolm forbes issue which caused such a scandal when you put when malcolm forbes died and you outed him in right. death on the cover and people the whole the whole frenzy about it yeah and people people were it was on once again it was everywhere everyone was talking about this and i for some reason was just horrified with you i was in death (laughs) you maligned this man in death and i wrote a letter to the editor to you and gabriel saying this this shall not stand this is just terrible how dare you and you guys thought it was so funny that you called and you laughed and you said why don't you write for the magazine and that's how I got because I had written this this awful letter to you. I I think though I think there's a really important point here, which is I think a lot of people and a lot of gay people felt that same way as you did, James. It was and I so know radical. I, it was, I, it so, was so radical. radical, and I think it's hard. It, it's important to and hard to remember the cultural atmosphere yes. then yeah. that it, the idea that it would be scandalous to say that someone was gay after they die. <laughs> right. Number one, number two, even more, the whole idea that if you're gay, that outing is completely, it makes sense. And the whole, the whole idea of visibility, I think was such a 
a conceptual hump to get so many people yeah. over, myself included. You know, I was gay, I was out, but the, the need to declare it and protest it and sort of, there was this sort of idea of like, that's not nice. There was a sort of idea of politeness that, that the very world you've been describing so brilliantly in terms of gossip columns and society, it all reinforced an idea that ultimately being gay is a stain or is something shameful. And you just deconstructed it so punk-like, you know, and unapologetically. It was really bracing. It was such a titanic shift in in right. in in all in the gay movement. I remember it so yeah. Fenton, we had Endless, endless conversations about it. Isn't it it was good? crazy, it right? and we knew that this was this moment that that you know things were never gonna you know. And you and it was the beginning because you were relentless. You didn't. It was like that was just the beginning, wasn't it? It really. I was feel that you you invented shouty caps. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the capital letters and Liz Smith. And all of, because they were, I was saying they were all part of this conspiracy. You know, the system used closeted people in power to keep other closeted people closeted. And David Geffen and, and all of those yes. people, right? And so um, the, the Malcolm Forbes was a culmination of a lot of it because when I was back at my call, we would write about Malcolm Forbes with Elizabeth Taylor as his girlfriend when we knew that wasn't true. <laughs> Malcolm Forbes was running around in leather chaps. He was an old man in leather outfits going to the, he was at, I think the, the picture of it that you used with the story is him and Michael Ailig and Elka Ailig. I don't know if you remember that. It's him at a oh, club yeah. kid party that's and right, he's in, right. in leather. You know, that's so like, right. That was like the, that was actually the opener. I remember that of the, of the story inside. Yes, it was it was Malcolm Forbes, Michael Hillig, and Elka, which I have to show you the picture. <laughs> Again, how these worlds collide, right? <laughs> the fact that he was gay and nobody could talk about it when he was at the Anvil and, you know, things like that. It's just, it's absolutely, it's it's crazy. And I also yeah. remember that um, it was the same week that Keith Haring passed away. Malcolm Forbes right. died. Keith died three days before Malcolm. And um, I wonder if there was a conversation. Which one do we do? Where which do we go with on the cover? Do you remember any of that, or was it always just this Malcolm? No, I, we had a big story. I think it was in the same issue. Yeah, Keith Haring. But we knew we would. I was working on the Malcolm Forbes for a few weeks because because what what really what enraged me was after he died, he was being held up by William F. Buckley Jr. and these other conservatives as yeah. this icon of capitalism and conservatism. And that's where just my gasket, you know, exploded. Your mind breaks, yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I, I went to the memorial service and I wrote about who was going there. And, you know, we, we planned that for a few weeks. And I had already been doing stuff like, you know, critiquing people and the word outing had already begun. It was Time magazine that first used the word, right? It was this man, William Henry the Third, who was a cultural critic, quite prominent and quite well known, and turns out he was a closeted gay man. He had a wife and he had but I didn't know at the time, but he created the word because 
think about it. He created a violent active verb, right? To, to make this thing sound terrible. And then I think, and, and, and I remember Larry Kramer telling me, he's gay. That guy is gay. And I was like, Larry, you have to give me the information. Like you have to give me all the dirt and how this, because apparently he would meet young guys and he'd get in his car, his limo. And I don't know. And, and uh, I said, Larry, you got to give me the information. I got a quote. And he goes, I'm not going to be part of that. He is a, a theater critic and I'm a playwright. <laughs> so even, <laughs> even Larry Kramer had his moments where, no, he's not going to do that. Okay. Um, uh, and so it was, to me, the fact that he created that word, you know, a closet case created that word, I think made all the sense in the world. Initially, though, you wanted to call it something else. Gabriel had said, we need to use the term equalizing because what we're trying to do is equalize the treatment of homosexuality and heterosexuality in the media. I was not of the point of view that this should only be directed at hypocrites and people who were, you know, um, living a life that contradicted what they were or certainly doing anti-gay thing. I thought we should talk about it in general, in general, I mean that we that we should not feel that we have to be part of the conspiracy of closeting these people. Um, much that, as we see now, when people just on the internet, I mean, it's amazing that we were talking about you know outing a gay uh, a gay man after he died in a magazine, uh, which nobody could pick up. Whereas today, people are online talking openly about who's gay and who's not on on the internet every day. There were um, around that time, there was uh, those posters all over the East Village and West Village. And it was um, remember, it was like Whitney Houston and Queen Latifah and Rosie and Ellen. Jodie Foster. No, Jodie. Yes, of course. Who, who did those? You remember? Those, the absolutely queer pro, uh, posters. They were like a takeoff of the absolute ads. Remember? And it was um, a group that was involved with Queer Nation, I think, mm. uh, like an offshoot of Queer Nation that put them up. And uh, yeah, those created quite a stir too. And, but when you think about how the, the uh, mainstream media was outraged, mm-hmm. and yet, like we were a small publication that you had to buy on a newsstand. Right. And those posters were only something you could see if you walked down the street. Like they amplified us because if mm-hmm. they just ignored us, nobody would know. You know, no, it, it took the Malcolm Forbes story. Actually, it took a period of weeks for it to actually, you know, get reported on because at first the Daily News had said, um, we heard you're doing this story and we would like to be the first ones to run it after, um, you know, like, we want to have it the day before or whatever, that you're about to do this. And we said, okay, and we gave them the exclusive, and then they chickened out at the last minute, um, and they had instead something about Donald Trump and Marla Maples on the front cover, I'll never forget, <laughs> and uh, um, by Liz Smith, by the way. And uh, it, it, it took, like, weeks for it to get to the surface. The LA Times did a story and they do a story about outing and they that's how they get a, you know, 
it, it just went around the country, the San Francisco Chronicle, and it eventually gets to the New York Times like a few weeks later, and they say a recently deceased businessman was outed. They wouldn't use his name. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was hilarious. It's funny, though, that um, of those people that you were constantly, that you and Musto and, and everybody was, was uh, wanting to come out, like, you know, Rosie and Ellen and even Liz Smith, they all eventually sort of came to forget, not forgive, but even befriend uh, you guys. Am I right? Yeah. Uh, well, Liz always was kind of sore with me, but she she came out and she she acknowledged that you know she well, i don't know if you remember but liz smith because she was with iris love right that was her her long time companion and she would write about iris and she'd say world famous archaeologist iris love <laughs> there's like no such thing as a world famous archaeologist. yeah yeah she'd write about her own girlfriend uh, yeah she would write and and at the party was world famous archaeologist <laughs> iris love i do think though that you it it shows that you nor you did equalize, and yeah. that all these people did actually come out. I was just thinking as you were talking about she, the one about whom the most mystery seems to hover is Whitney Houston, and seems to be the la latest addition. Do you know what I mean? Like I still think people out there may not know that Whitney Houston is gay, and I right. But it you really did normalize it, and I think everybody everybody did see the light, and I think it took a moment, it took a few years, but they. And they go through, it's like they go through um, the stages of like anger, grief, you know, the whole thing. Mm. Until like, like I remember Rosie, she was infuriated. Um, she went on Larry King. She called me a moron uh, when, you know, he raised this and this and that. And then, you know, eventually Rosie is writing me and we're friends and she's out and we're talking, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a very specific, pivotal moment in time that you were at the forefront. And, you know, I think I, we all owe you a debt of, of gratitude for what you've done for the gay society. Agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I look at uh, someone like Lil Nas X, you know, and just the freedom from shame and the like, I'm not going to take any shit from anyone. It's just, to me, that's your achievement. You know, that yeah. all of this thing over years and years and years and all oh, that's great. packed that's up on the protest, it gives <laughs> us Lil Nas X, which is just so fabulous, you know, who doesn't oh, give a fuck, who's here and queer and out and proud and like demands to be treated completely equally. And it's like, and he is. And it's like, yeah. it's just such a great thing. That kind of way of thinking just permeated. And a lot of, the younger people might not even know any of this, anything right. we're talking about that happened, right? But they, they know that something around them is, is not the way it was back then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, one last, going back to the 80s party okay. thing, and then, I, and then I'll let you go. But do you remember, because I've been telling this story for 30 years, uh, the Halston party? Do you remember what happened there? Yes. Now, you're at Halston's house. That's right. Martha Graham, Liza. Liza, Bianca, Martha Graham, Diana Vreeland, all the uh, Warhol, everybody's there. It's this fabulous party, and everyone's all soigné and acting blasé. 
and the doorbell rings and who is it? Oh my God, am I forgetting this, my own story? This this is the this is the crux of the I story. Love what James remembers, you see. Yeah. <laughs> makes it everyone up. is sitting around and everyone's bored with everyone because they've all been hanging out for twenty years. And then the doorbell rings. And that I was covering this it was a luncheon for Martha Graham at Halston's apartment. That, that fabulous white apartment that's sterile white that everyone uh, g- gushes on and on about. The doorbell rings and it's Natalie Schaefer who played Lovey Howell on Gilligan's Island. Yes, yes. And Bianca and, and Liza and Andy lose their shit because Lovey Howell has joined them. And it's like they're with all these fabulous people. But then when Mrs. Howell walks in, that's like the greatest celebrity they've ever seen in their lives. <laughs> And I have this picture in my head of them all sitting on this couch. That was just amazing, you know. That white ultra suede when the, and they're yes. all. It looks just like yeah, sitting. And of course, it wasn't a real luncheon. It was just for the media. Like I'm sure they had lunch later. <laughs> like it was for them to sit on that couch and make believe they were having lunch. And then they just trot in the media to take the picture and write about it. (laughs) Yes, it was very bizarre. So fabulous times. It's so nice catching up with you again. I love you so much. Oh my God, this was great. Thanks for reminding me of everything. I'm like, (laughs) you better get your hands on those diaries. That's all I can (laughs) say. Oh God, I'm so afraid of that. $10,000. I probably blocked out a lot of what I just want to filter out from back then. And James (laughs) has it all on paper, doesn't he? (laughs) It is. It's it's the idea. And I think you know this too. And Michael Musto certainly knows this. Is if you go home that night and you write some, you write out what you did, it stays with it, like stays with you longer. It's the act of writing and journaling that makes me perfect for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you guys, I'm afraid I have to go to a luncheon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Michelangelo C. Rally. It's been wonderful catching up with you. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Fenton. And uh, we will see you all later. Yay. Thank you. We adore you. And thank you for all you've done. You're amazing. Inspiration. Yeah. Thank and like you. And we we could have talked for another two hours as well because there's there's so much more you know with the with the radio show and blah blah blah. Anyway, thank you very much. <laughs>